All right, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're picking up again in verses 14 through 16. You can find it on page 977, 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. And so over at the welcome table to my right, we have Bibles, the story ESVs that are there for you. We want you to have the word. That's our gift to you. So please take us up on that. Grab, grab a Bible, please. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I introduced Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 by asking this question, how do we build the church? Or more appropriately, how has God designed and united and equipped us to build the church? And what we saw is that it has nothing to do with music style, has nothing to do with sights and sounds, with fashions or fads or the way that we dress. It has nothing to do with our age, with our interests, with our color, with our background, and with our checking accounts. We don't build the church through having dynamic, funny front men who tell interesting stories and brief antidotes that are light in theology and heavy in emotional appeal. We don't build the church with capital campaigns for brick and mortar structures. We don't build the church through slick presentations or entertaining programs for our kids. No, what we saw last time in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 is that Christ's strategy for true church growth requires first that we receive, not that we go out and find, but that we actually receive from the Lord faithful, competent, godly, trustworthy men who will Lead us, teach us, guide us, direct us, nourish us with the word of God, right? It means going deep, giving us meat, not just feeding us milk. Second, to have every member employ the gifts that the Lord has given them in the service for the church for the building up of the body of Christ. It's every member serving, every member ministry. Third, don't settle for anything less than complete maturity in Christ, The goal is not to just get people to make professions of faith or get them to live a little bit better than they did before. The goal is to be like Christ. It's not get them in, get them really comfortable, get them wet, get them giving, and then move on to the next. The goal is complete maturity in Christ. And this morning, in verses 14 through 16, we're going to add steps four and five to this path to true church growth. Number four is Hold to right doctrine so as not to be deceived. And number five, we must all speak the truth to each other in love. Now, when you think about that, I mean, could, could Christ possibly design a, a growth strategy that is any less popular? I mean, what could be less interesting, less, less popular in the eyes of modern man than what I have just listed to you? I mean, this goes against who we are. I mean, think about this. Submitting to leaders who teach a lot of doctrine. Every person serving to pursue the goal of complete maturity in Christ, of being like him in every way. And now he adds to that, pursue doctrine and truth and unity and depend upon each other and be responsible for each other as we speak the truth in love to each other when so often we don't want to hear it? 
I mean, what could be less popular in the eyes of modern Christianity? I mean, this goes against everything that we are as independent, individualistic, skeptical, commitment, and authority-fearing consumers. And yet, we are assured that when each part is working properly, when we're actually doing all of these things, it makes the church grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our maturity in Christ is dependent upon Christ's plan for true church growth. And so this morning, we're simply going to examine the contrast that God gives us in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, for those who try to go it their own way, who try to live and be Christians on their own terms versus those who do it Christ's way, who follow Christ's pattern to reach true maturity in Christ. And the disparity between these two cannot be greater. One results in perpetual infancy. The other, immaturity in Christ. One leaves us tossed about, susceptible to all sorts of dangers. The other, joined and held together. One is filled with deception. The other, with truth. One is of human origin and leads to worldly ends. The other is from Christ and leads us to Christ. One is filled with crafty individuals who serve only themselves. The other with honest, loving people who gladly serve others for the growth of the body. And the reason why Paul presents this comparison for us is that we would move away from the one and into the other so that we would grow into maturity in Christ. He wants us to understand, grasp, and live in light of this central truth, that God's great purpose for the church is maturity in Christ. God's great purpose for the church is maturity in Christ. Now, for context, I want us to actually begin reading in chapter 4, verse 11. So, page 977, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says, And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is our head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So God's great purpose for you and for me together in the church is maturity in Christ. Now, if we are going to pursue maturity in Christ according to God's plan for growth, we must first no longer live as children. Now, we need to remember who we were. That apart from Christ, apart from God's work of salvation by his grace, we were dead in our sin. We in our rejection of God, 
all once followed the course of this world. We were all once deceived by the devil. We were all once subject to God's condemnation, to God's judgment, God's wrath against our sin. Because we've all tried to go it alone and live our lives as if this is my world and I'm God. We've rejected God. And so we either were, or maybe even some of you here today still are, children of wrath, subject to God's judgment. We were all separated from Christ. We were all alienated from his people. We were all strangers to his promises, having no hope and without God in the world. We all rejected the God who made us, the God who sustains us. And in our sin, we have gladly placed ourselves under his condemnation. We have separated ourselves from God. That's who we all were. We all have that in common. But in his mercy and by his lavish grace, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of obedience. He fulfilled God's laws completely and he laid down that life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins like ours deserved. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He rose again to prove who he was, that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied, and so that God, by his grace, chose to make some of us alive through the resurrection of Christ by changing our hearts so that we would see who he is, how great our sin was against him, and by leading us to respond to him by turning away from our sin and turning towards Christ in faith, to walk in obedience to his life, his death, his resurrection, seeking to exemplify and carry out his name before the watching world because we have been eternally reconciled to God. And even though God has saved us by his grace, and this was all of his grace according to chapter 2 verses 4 through 10, he didn't immediately make us perfect like Christ. It's one of those fascinating things if you ever really thought about God can do anything. I mean, God could have chosen to save us in such a way that, boom, we're automatically like Jesus in every way. But he didn't. Though God's people were chosen from before the foundation of the world, according to chapter 1, verse 4, God chose them so that they could become holy and blameless before him. Though God has adopted us into his family through the blood of Christ, we don't automatically start living as though we're his obedient children, do we? But God has redeemed us and forgiven us of our sin. We still sin against him. And we must live lives of continual repentance and faith. And though God has made us alive and he's raised us and he's seated us together with Christ, At times we still live as those who are dead and defeated by sin. Though he has reconciled us to himself through the church and he has united us by the work of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace, so often we still live in hostility and disunity. I mean, another way of saying it is that when God saves us, he doesn't save us into complete maturity. He doesn't make us perfect. Those who are born again are not born into mature manhood, not born into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like in our physical birth, we are born as infants. So in our spiritual birth and being born again by faith in Jesus Christ, we are born as spiritual infants. That's what he's saying here. 
quite literally, no longer be infants. Now, there are a number of you who are here who are fairly recent believers, right? I mean, you maybe grasp this better than, than some of us who have been walking with the Lord for quite a while, right? Is that when God changes your heart, suddenly it's like you're alive and you're breathing for the first time. That he's opened your eyes and the world is new and you're exploring and you're learning and you're grasping and, and everything is, is just so fresh, so new. And as you spend time with people who've walked with Christ for longer, you realize, boy, there's still a lot that I don't know, but I'm eager just like an infant to learn and to grow and to examine. And I'm learning how to walk and I'm learning how to talk and I'm learning how to think and I'm learning how to live for the first time. Well, you can attest to that fact. That's what it's like to be born again. We're not born into maturity. We're born as infants. But we're not intended to stay as infants. God's intention is for us to grow into maturity in Christ. And the biggest danger in Christianity today is not tax from outside the church. It's not the fact that unbelievers are unbelievers and they're persecuting the church. The biggest danger to Christianity is perpetual infancy from within. Greatest danger to the church is the church and to deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're mature when in reality we're still living as infants and being fine with that. Let's think about infants for just a minute. How do infants act? And I want us to think about this so that we can kind of see, man, I'm, I'm a lot more like an infant than I think I am. I mean, infants are cute. Infants are sweet. You guys are cute and sweet, right? But infants are also helpless, defenseless, and selfishly demand instant gratification. Infants strive for independence, so as soon as they figure out how to move these arms and legs, they just want to go, go, go. They want to climb up ladders and climb up stairs and climb up onto windowsills, but they have no idea what they're doing and how dangerous that is, right? They, they, they don't know the risk that's involved with that. And when you tell them to stop or when you tell them to come to mommy or daddy, what do they do? They giggle and run the other way. Little children know when they're hungry. They know when they're tired, though they never want to go to sleep, right? They know when they need their diaper changed, but they have no idea how to do that. And even if they knew how to do that, they have no ability in and of themselves to actually do what is required. They know what they want to eat, right? Sugary cereal. But they reject when you're trying to give them food that would actually nourish their body because it's not what they want, but yet for all of their tantrums and their fit throwing and their crying and their screams because they don't want to eat what you've given them, they can't change the fact. They can't provide for themselves. And the only way they're going to get what they want is if you, the parent, give in. Infants lack self-control. Even if you're trying to give them what they're wanting, right? This is my favorite. I'm trying, I'm scrambling to get this ready for you. I know you want this. I'm trying to actually do this for you, right? I'm not doing it fast enough, and so you're screaming at me. Or 
when you're withholding something for their good, they can't possibly understand why. Little children automatically respond in anger and violence. You take a toy from them, what do they do? Another kid takes a, a toy from them, what do they, they kick, they scream, they bite, right? They attack, they go on the defensive, right? They, they run away and hide. They seek to divide themselves from others to keep that toy. And I tell you what, if they knew how to do it, what you would see if you were up in the children's ministry right now, if one kid takes a toy away from another, you'd see these little gossip sessions over the corner. I just cannot believe that little Ben took that toy away from little Sky. Did you see that? And then from that point on, they've just made decisions that Ben is just going to steal toys, right? And so anytime Ben gets anywhere near Sky, from that point forward, she just freaks out because she knows that Ben is going to steal the toy. Little children are fickle. They think they love something. They cherish it. They delight in playing with it until they see that kid playing with that toy. And suddenly that once cherished toy is dropped and I'm running after that other one, right? And I'm going for that because that's the one I want. I'm fighting about it. But then I don't want you to play with that one either. So I'm jumping back and forth between the two, right? Based upon what I want when I want it. But only when I want it. Now, this might sound childish. Pardon the pun. But how often do those behaviors describe your relationships with others? I mean, if you thought long and hard about the ways that you relate to other people, how often do those same types of activities, maybe you don't cry and scream and throw tantrums about wanting to eat sugary cereal, though I have from time to time. Uh, How often have you done that? How often have you seen seen this same childish immaturity in churches and among those who profess to be mature in their faith? Children by nature seek independence. They don't want to share life with others. At least if they do, it's only on their own terms. Children by nature want what they want and they will use just about any means to get what they want. Children by nature reject authority. They distrust others and are fickle, failing to commit to anything. Well, if we took a good, honest look at ourselves, this describes us far more than any of us are willing to accept. But Paul says that the reason why God has united us together in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, the reason why we have the church The reason why he has given each of us gifts that we are to use to build up the body and the reason why Christ gave us church leaders is so that we would no longer be children. Those who fail to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace are children. Those who refuse to commit to a local body and use their Christ-given gifts to build up that body are children. Those who rail against faithful church leaders who are committing themselves to teaching according with God's word are children. We could go on and on and on about this. 
And in case you're wondering, what, what, what does it matter? I mean, why does he care whether or not we remain as children? Because after all, we are children. We are in at that point. We're God's children. We might be spiritual babes, but still we're spiritual. Isn't that good enough? We made it in. We passed the test. We've done just enough. Jumped that lowest hurdle. Why can't we just stay there? Well, God gives us two illustrations that describe why we are not to remain as children. He says, children are tossed to and fro by the waves. It's dangerous. I mean, picture here a ship caught out in the middle of a storm. It's tossed back and forth, risk, at risk of being capsized or being sunk by the crashing waves. And even if it survives, it's sure to be led off course or lost at sea. But not only is it dangerous to remain as a child, it is also filled with deception. Spiritual infants are carried about by every wind, like a kite that has come loose from its string, or a flag torn from its pole, or a tumbleweed that is broken away from its root system. So is the spiritual child that remains separated from God's truth and God's family. They are blown about by every gust of wind in any and every direction. These are spiritual infants who have not firmly been grounded in the one faith. And so they are carried about by every wind of doctrine. They have no ability to discern what is true from what is false. Or what is the whole truth from what is half truth. They fall prey to any fine sounding argument or teaching that scratches their itching ears or suits their passions. Their feelings and their desires become the standard for determining truth rather than the word of God. They cannot detect when someone is twisting the scripture. I mean, I see this every week on Facebook. You know, I've got friends who like one day they will post from a really solid Christian author. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. And then the next day they're posting from a heretic. I've got other friends that I swear to you have changed doctrinal positions more than they changed their bed linens. They have little or no ability to discern right doctrine. But not only are these children susceptible to the deception of false doctrine, they are also carried about by human cunning, by the trickery of men. These are easily misled and manipulated maybe emotionally by the selfish motives of others towards ungodly pursuits. And they are carried about by craftiness and deceitful schemes. They fall into this web of delusion and deceit, into a system of error so elaborate that they find themselves so caught up in all of the lies that they can't possibly discern truth from error. Now our culture is full of false doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes that would entice us away from the gospel. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. The problem doesn't only exist outside the church. He's saying there's risk if you are and remain as spiritual infants for it to exist within. You see, until Christ's return, there will always be imposters among us. 
There will always be false teachers. There will always be wolves in sheep's clothing who would attempt to lead the flock astray. And John Calvin once said that Satan can never rest without striving to darken by his lies the pure doctrine of Christ. And so he will always be working to deceive us with lies, with half-truths, with distortions of the gospel. And he will use these people who outwardly profess Christ but inwardly have not been changed to lead as many people as possible astray into confusion, into apathy and indifference regarding God's truth, to settling for something less, reducing, lessening in order to keep us at least as spiritual infants but not maturity in Christ. If we remain as spiritually immature children, we will have no ability in and of ourselves to discern and to stand against false doctrine, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. You will not be strong enough or smart enough by yourself not to be tossed and carried about by them. And I think that so often when we look at this passage or we look at other passages like this one that are talking about false teachers, we just kind of pass by them because we expect, I think, false teachers to look like devils. We expect them to be known by their horns and tail and a pitchfork as if a devil looked like that. But that's not what they look like. And so we naively, we move on without really carefully considering this, carefully thinking about what we believe and why we believe it and how it corresponds with the truth of God's word. We think that we're too smart for that or that it doesn't concern me because I'm not killing people for Charles Manson and I'm not drinking Jim Jones' blue Kool-Aid. So who cares? No, more often than not, And now probably more than ever before, we are in danger of being deceived by partial truth, by distortions of the gospel, by twisting of scripture to our personal liking and ignoring the parts that we don't. We're much more likely to be tossed to and fro when we are deceived by our desires for comfort, for ease, for novel entertainment, when we choose presentation and feel-good amusements rather than truth. We are in danger when we choose to remain in ignorance and leave things in the dark rather than exposing them into the light. It's present when we see resistance and antagonism toward authority, towards discipline, towards doctrine. So often these distortions of God's truth, they seem innocent enough. Well, that person's just not quite getting that right. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they're misguided. But, but it's my friend or it's my family. And so I'm not going to worry about it. But in God's eyes, if there is any attempt to change, to compromise, or to lessen God's truth and to manipulate or lead others to do the same, 
But friends, it's false teaching. Even in saying God is love, right? True. It's a true statement. It's even a verse in the Bible, right? First John 4, was it 7 or 8? God is love. If we treat that verse as a blanket acceptance of us and a benign affirmation of people who continue in their rebellion unrepentantly while ignoring the fact that God is holy and that as creator, God owns us, sustains us, and governs us, and that God loves us enough that he sent his son to die for us so that we might be changed by the gospel, if we ignore those things and only hold to the concept that God is love apart from everything else that God is, it leaves only to universalism and is at that point false doctrine. And that is just one of thousands of examples where the truth of Scripture is distorted, minimized, reduced to the detriment of the gospel. It makes it a false gospel. Friends, we are far more susceptible to the dangers and deceptions of spiritual infancy than we think. And so what do we do? How do we avoid remaining as spiritual infants, as these little children? Well, first of all, we need to guard against the tendency to slowly drift away from biblical convictions and priorities because of ignorance or our failure to do the hard work of knowing Christ. So we have to labor at these things and we have to hold to convictions. Second, we must guard against the tendency to act on feeling rather than evaluating the situation in light of Scripture. This one gets us far more often than we care to admit. Maybe you've been sexually immoral because you were in love. Maybe you've refused to reconcile with a brother or sister in Christ because you're harboring anger and bitterness in your heart. Maybe you've lied and concealed sin because you were embarrassed by the idea of confessing it. Maybe you know people who stay in churches that are not faithful to all of Christ's teaching because they enjoy the relationships that they have with others and they fear losing them to faithfully follow Christ. Placing our feelings over following biblical truth is a mark of spiritual immaturity. And third... We must guard against the cultural pressure to water down truth that would lead us to compromise, placing man before and above Christ. As our culture wants us to do this all the time. I don't have to list examples for you. You see it every day. Christ must be first. But the ultimate answer to that question of how we do not remain as spiritual infants is actually answered in verses 15 and 16. We are no longer to remain as children. Rather, second, we are to be one body growing into Christ. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. Christ has knit us together in the bond of peace through the unity that comes only from the Holy Spirit. He has founded us upon the one faith. He's provided gifts to each of us and he's given us leaders to equip the church for maturity so that we would no longer be children, but rather we are to grow up into every, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. There is a sharp contrast here. He says, no longer remain as a bunch of individual, helpless, naive infants in the midst of danger and deception. Instead, we are to grow up in every way into Christ as one single body. Just like in verse 13, we start out as individual children who grow until we all attain to the unity of the faith to the measure, to, to, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to one mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Together, we are to grow up into Christ in every way. Every way. Not some. Not in those ways that are most appealing or most convenient. I'll I'll grow up in Christ by reading my Bible and praying. But love people that Christ loved, serving people that Christ served, I'm not going to do that. No, we are to be like him in every way. The goal is perfect Christ-likeness to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, not just for some of us, but for all of us together as one body, the church. And as you look around, I mean, just look around, guys. Love y'all. You're growing a ton. I'm thankful for what I'm seeing, but we still have a lot to do. There's a lot of growth that needs to happen in our lives. And what's amazing here is that Paul even included himself in this. The Apostle Paul was not exempt from the need to grow. He says, until we all are to we all are to grow up into Christ, right? He's including himself in that. And if the Apostle Paul hasn't arrived, then certainly I have not arrived. None of us have arrived. But it's growth that we are to do together. We are to grow up into our head into Christ. Christ is the head. He is the ruler. He is the leader of the church. He is supreme. It's not my church. This is not our church. This is Christ's church. And he is to rule it. He is to lead it. But he's also the head in that he's our source of life. Colossians 2 says that our nourishment, our life, and our growth comes from our head. It's dependent upon him. And yet in verse 16, it tells us that our head includes us in the life-giving growth of the body. Now, verse 16 is a very complex sentence, but if you were to diagram the grammar here, you're looking for subject, verb, direct object, and so on. What you see here is that Paul is saying the body makes the growth of the body. The body makes the body grow. And it does this as the whole body is connected to its head, its ruler and source of life, Jesus Christ. 
as Jesus, not men, but Jesus is leading the church, and as we are submitted in all things, in all areas of life, in every aspect, to our head, Jesus Christ, and as we are receiving life and nourishment from him and him alone, through the proclaimed word of God, the body makes the body grow. If the body is not connected to, submitted to, or fed by the head, Christ, it will not grow. It may have the veneer of growth. Well, look at how many people we're adding to the number. But in truth, it's dead. A decapitated body. And at that point, it's not a true church. Also, verse 16 says that the body makes the body grow when we are joined We have been joined together, right? This is the same word that we saw back in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, right? That together we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined and fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now remember, I used that illustration of a master stonecutter building a wall. That what he does is he takes all of these random stones of various sizes and shapes. In and of themselves, they're worthless. But as he chisels away at them, he makes them into perfect rectangles of different shapes. I mean, of different sizes. And he places them into their perfect placement along that wall. And as he does that, that wall grows. Jesus is building his church. And as he is forming and fitting us together, frictioning, clearing, forming us into this glorious picture, this temple in the Lord by the Spirit, that's what he's doing. He's joined us and is joining us together. This is a process that he's doing. We are being formed as stones, being built into a dwelling place for God. But not only are we joined, the body makes the body grow when we are held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Literally, he's saying here, the body is knit together through the support or provision of every joint. The body of Christ is like a human body. This interdependent system of parts that each one is dependent upon the other for provision, for life, for sustenance. (coughs) If we are to function, if we are to grow, if we are to have life, we need all of the parts functioning, providing their particular role, their particular gifting in the way that they're supposed to. This was equipped by Christ so that through dependence upon every single part, the body might function and grow. I don't know if you've taken anatomy, but, you know, if you start removing parts of the body, well, you could just be clumsy, right? You don't have to study anatomy. You can just be clumsy, all right? If you start removing parts of the body, what happens? You, you get your finger following a chain of a bicycle, suddenly... I had a friend that did that, cut his finger off. Yeah. If that happens, the body can't function as it's meant to function. You're walking around like this all the time. Worst case scenario, the body dies because it can't function without that part. And if you cut that part out and you remove it and you set it on the counter, what happens? Well, that part certainly dies. It's guaranteed. 
That's my anatomy lesson for the day. But to say that you don't need the body, according to this passage, is equivalent to saying that you don't need Christ. Do you get that? To say that you do not need the body is equivalent to saying that you don't need Christ. The truth is you need the whole body and the whole body needs you. Next, Paul tells us that the body makes the body grow when each part is working properly. Not only is it this, there this necessary interconnectedness, but each part must also be working properly. We all have a part to play, and we all must play that part in order for the body to grow. And here, again, literal tra- translation is helpful. Literally, it says, according to the effective operating power in measure of every single part. But that word, effective operating power, is the same word we saw back in chapter 1, verse 19, and the same word that we saw in chapter 3, verse 7. That effective operating power is the power of God that, rose, that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him over everything and is at work towards us who believe. It's that same effective operating power that made Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. That equipped him to do what he has called him to do. It is given out according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so what he's saying here is that Christ is powerfully working through each and every one of us so that every single part, every single one of us can play the role that he has called us to play for the growth of the body. You don't do it on your own. Christ equips you to do what he's called you to do. This is a great comfort to us. You don't have to have everything figured out. You just need to be willing and intentional to play the part Christ has called you to play. To commit yourself to the growth of the body to responding to that call to work for the building of the body. Christ will, at that point, equip you to do what he has called you to do. It's not in your own strength, but in his effective operating power. What you are responsible for is your desire and your intention. Is it your intentional purpose to build up yourself or to actively help grow the body of Christ? Because if it is the latter, then Christ will equip you by his effective operating power to do what he has called you to do. So friends, understand, your attendance and your active participation in the life of the body matter. There are no small or insignificant parts. It is necessary for you and it is necessary for the body. We can't just say, yeah, you know what, if I, if I commit myself to building up the body, great. If I don't, not a big deal. If I'm here or I'm not, it doesn't matter. That's not what this passage is saying. Your good and the good of the church are dependent upon it. We grow when we all play our part when we're all working toward that end, according to the effective working of Christ, his power at work in us. So don't minimize it, cast it aside. And the purpose of the body making the body grow is so that it builds itself up in love. If we are doing all of those things, 
The body will grow in size. The body will grow in stature. The body will grow in wisdom and knowledge and discernment. The body will grow in maturity. The body will grow in unity. The body will grow in truth. The body will grow in love. So practically, how do we grow up in every way into Christ? Well, I've already given us a lot of applications, but I want to be very specific because this text is very specific. First, we grow up into Christ, according to verse 15, by speaking the truth in love. Our growth requires both truth and love. We need both of them working together in unison to grow. The body doesn't grow by being nice to each other or doing nice things for each other, but never truthfully and honestly dealing with big issues or helping others to overcome sin in their lives. But it also means that we don't bludgeon each other to death with the truth, that we treat it legalistically and dogmatically as some some sword or some bat that we just beat people down with the truth. It must happen in love. We are to speak the truth in love, wisely and lovingly come alongside each other for the glory of Christ and the good of others to lead them to truth and to right doctrine for right living so as not to remain in the danger and the deception of immaturity. But to go a step further... That word is literally translated truthing in love. It means a lot of things. We are to be truthful. We're to tell the truth and not tell lies. We are to speak the truth. We are to live and model and practice the truth in our everyday lives that rules out all cunning and all deception. To live so above reproach that people know that we are sincere when we speak to them. And that we teach and we proclaim the truth to each other. The word of truth. The gospel of our salvation. The one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Standing firm against the schemes of the devil by fastening the belt of truth that is Jesus Christ around our waists. And we do this in love. We do it in love because we love Christ. And we love each other more than we love ourselves. If you love yourself more than Christ and more than each other, you will never speak the truth in love. But we do it. We speak the truth in love because we love Christ and each other more. And so I'm willing to enter into the messiness and difficulty and conflict and sin of your life because I love you more and I love Christ more and I'm willing to walk with you even though it's hard and it's difficult and it's painful and it causes me to lose sleep and to be suffer with you because I love you and I want to carry that burden with you. That's why we do it. I want to be a means of grace in your life to help you to live the life that you were intended to live. To be fully mature, perfectly obedient, reconciled to God and, and each of us growing together in our union with Christ. To speak the truth in love is how we grow together in maturity in Christ. 
if we are failing, we will not be living in our union with Christ. We will not be loving Christ. We will not be loving each other. We will be loving ourselves. But a second application in how we are to grow up into Christ by depending on Christ and on each other. I've already kind of hit on this, so I'm going to try to be brief. But growth in holiness and Christ-likeness cannot come from our own strength. You will not grow into maturity in Christ simply by praying or reading the Bible or performing your religious duties. You cannot will yourself out of your sin. The only hope of change and growth is through complete dependence upon Christ. We must submit to him in all things, in every way. I'm sorry, guys. This is ridiculous. And finding our hope and satisfaction, our joy, our life, our strength from him and not from ourselves. And in his wisdom, Christ has designed growth to happen not just in our dependence upon him. It's not just me and Jesus, but in our dependence upon each other. The body was Christ's idea. The church is the conduit, the supply line of this life and strength that comes from Jesus. And as we hold to Christ and we proclaim Christ and we speak the truth of Christ in love to each other, the body grows and we grow with it, but never apart from it. We cannot grow to maturity without it. We need the head and the head has a body. And to reject the body is to reject the head and to naively think that I am mature enough to go it alone. That I know better than Christ. I can handle this myself. Only to fall into danger, to deception. To be infants in the midst of a storm. And so friends, if you are here and you have not committed yourself to a local expression of the church, I, I just have to ask you, why? What makes you think that you can go it alone? What makes you think that you know better than Christ? I mean, we've seen it. In Ephesians, over and over and over and over again. You need the whole body and the whole body needs you. So, friends, just trust in Christ. Trust God's word. Know that he knows what's better for you, far better than you do. And depend upon his means of maturity. Trying to gain composure, guys. So we grow in, in, in maturity in Christ by speaking the truth in love, by dep- humbly depending on Christ and on each other. And a third application, by working together to build the body. <clears throat> All those who are in Christ have been united 
They have been called. They have been founded upon the faith. They have been gifted. They have received church leaders. They have been equipped to play their part in the building up of the body of Christ in love. You have a part to play. Your attendance, your participation, your intentional effort and growth are essential for the life, the health, and the growth of the church. But not just this church but Christ's church. Through our prayers and our service, through our active participation and growth and gifts, through the pursuit to maintain the unity that comes from the Spirit, and through our own active and intentional obedience to Christ, we participate in God's eternal cosmic purpose to unite all things in Christ and to display His triumph and His wisdom and His goodness and His glory to the entire cosmos. Guys, your participation in the life of the body has eternal ramifications. And this happens when we pray for, we give, and we serve missionary endeavors. And when we also do very, very ordinary and mundane acts of love and service for the glory of Christ and the building up of the church. This happens when you preach or whether you hug, whether you plant churches or whether you scrub floors. If you are doing that with gospel intentionality for the effort to edify and encourage and build up the body of believers so that it makes itself grow, that it builds itself up in love, that it has eternal consequences. There is no such thing as an insignificant, menial, optional task for the life of a Christian. It all has an eternal weight of glory. And so the question is, how are you doing these things? When you gather with the church, this body of believers, do you come to get or do you come to give? Are you focused on yourself or are you desiring to help build the body? Are you here in some effort to gain grace for yourself? Well, friends, just know that we're called to give grace, and we give grace because we've already received lavish and abundant, overwhelming grace from Christ that frees us up to then give it out. And if we give it out, we find that we receive far more than we could ever imagine. We don't get grace by hanging on to it and asking for more. We get grace by giving it and giving it and giving it and giving it. Our growth and maturity is not measured individually, but corporately. It is evidenced by truth, by unity, and by love. So let's no longer live as children. Let's grow together in every way into Christ. Because God's great purpose for the church, for you, for me, is maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, help this not to be just words on a page or words that happen to be coming out of my mouth. 
Oh God, may we see that as, this as your truth and may we desire more than anything else to walk in light of it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.